You're listening to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. I'm Harmon Kang and I'll be your host for the next half hour. On today's show, we have Better Know Feminist segment where we learn more about Alice Walker and we're taking the time machine back to the 1940s where we discuss farmerettes and feminism in farming. The following archived Better Know Feminist segment on Alice Walker is narrated and written by Marco Visconti and was aired last year. Hello, Evers. My name is Marco Visconti and it's time for Better Know a Feminist. This week, I want to chat with you about Alice Walker and womanism. But first, who is Alice Walker? Alice Walker is an African-American writer and poet, most well known for her novel The Color Purple, which was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1983, making Alice Walker the first black woman to receive the award. And the book was later adapted into a major film directed by Steven Spielberg in 1985, and it co-stars Oprah. In The Color Purple, Walker draws on her childhood growing up in rural Georgia to explore the lives of black women living in the American South in the 1930s. She illustrates the various ways that her lives have been marked by the legacy of slavery and racial segregation in the USA, simultaneously exposing the intertwining nature of misogyny and white supremacy. The emotional and physical struggles of the book's protagonists are laid bare often in explicit ways to drive these points home. Here's Alice Walker summarizing the story of The Color Purple in an interview with Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! on the book's 30th anniversary. For especially young people who may not have, definitely they've probably heard of The Color Purple, Mm -hmm. but may not have read it, just lay out the story for us. Well, the story is about Celie, who was abused by her her stepfather. She lost her own father, who was lynched, and this is part of the story that is rarely uh, talked about, that her own father was lynched because he was so successful as a businessman in the South, when black people were not supposed to be successful. And then she um, became the victim of her stepfather. Uh, and raped, uh, and she had two children uh, who were taken away from her and ended up uh, in Africa with her her sister, who had gone there as a missionary's helper. Uh, It basically is the struggle of someone who thinks she has no voice and has no place and writes letters to God because she has nobody else to write to. Um, and then she discovers that the god that she's writing to is deaf because he's basically the Christian god that has been imposed on black people. Uh, and at that point, she, she, she starts writing to her sister. And eventually, she understands that divinity is all around us and that we are a part of it, and it's in nature. In addition to being a novelist, Alice Walker is also a vocal advocate for black feminism and an active contributor to contemporary feminist theory. Back in 1982, even before she wrote The Color Purple, Walker penned a collection of personal essays called In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, Womanist Prose, in which she coined the term womanist and womanism. So what is womanism and what makes it different from feminism? This is how Andrea Lewis explains it in a video made by the online magazine The Root. 
You may have heard the word intersectionality thrown around a lot lately. A black woman coined the term in 1989 to highlight the overlapping ways black women are oppressed every day. Her name is Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, and her work is especially relevant today. Because even though intersectionality is a buzzword these days, traditional feminism still doesn't consider the many ways black women and other women of color experience oppression. And that makes a lot of people feel marginalized by the movement that's supposed to fight for them. Despite being historically left out of feminism, black women have always been doing the work, creating their own political and social movements that don't depend on traditional feminism at all. Writer Alice Walker coined the term womanist in 1983. Womanism is a social framework that separates itself from feminism and centers black women. Here's how scholar Laylee Phillips puts it. Unlike feminism and despite its name, womanism does not emphasize or privilege gender or sexism. Rather, it elevates all sites and forms of oppression to a level of equal concern and action. So Alice Walker intentionally describes her politics as womanist, as opposed to feminist, as a deliberate contrast to the dominant narrative of mainstream feminism, which historically has always privileged the voices of white middle-class women who do not face the compounded barriers of racial oppression in addition to gender oppression. You might be familiar with the idea of intersectionality, and womanism is definitely similar. Intersectionality was coined by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw in the 1980s, around the same time Alice Walker coined the term womanist. Intersectionality urges feminists to consider how systems of oppression and privilege may compound and coexist within a single body simultaneously. And in return, it pushes us to consider how liberation means different things to different groups of marginalized folks, based on the uniqueness of their particular intersection of identities. Basically, intersectionality reminds us that women, as a group, are too diverse for their struggles to be universally shared or defined. And the only way to practice a feminism that is truly centered on empathy is through the acknowledgement of women's specific experiences both as individuals and as members of their specific communities. However, womanism goes beyond the inclusion of elements such as race and class in feminist discourse about gender justice. Womanism takes a much harder stance against the failures of mainstream feminism to care for the needs of black women and other women who do not fit the privileged model of womanhood as represented by white middle-class society. By defining itself as a separate movement and a separate set of politics, womanism represents a new growth of feminist discourse while underlining the agency of black women and other women of color who have been ignored and hurt by mainstream feminism. That being said, some view womanism as an alternative form or a complement to modern feminism. But in Alice Walker's own words, womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. For Adam and Eve, my name is Marco Visconti. I want something else, a different system entirely. One not seen on this earth for thousands of years, if ever. Democratic womanism. Notice how this word has man right in the middle of it. That's one reason I like it. He is right there, front and center, but he is surrounded. I want to vote and work for a way of life that honors the feminine, a way that acknowledges the theft of the wisdom, female and dark mother leadership might have provided our spaceship all along.
I am not thinking of a talking head kind of gal, happy to be mixing it up with the baddest bad boys on the planet. Her eyes a slit, her mouth a zipper. No, I am speaking of true regime change, where women rise to take their place en masse at the helm of Earth's frail and failing ship, where each thousand years of our silence is examined with regret, and the cruel manner in which our values of compassion and kindness have been ridiculed and suppressed, brought to bear on the disaster of the present time. The past must be examined closely, I believe, before we can leave it there. Welcome back to Adam and Eve, CJSR's feminist radio program. You just finished listening to an archived Better Know Feminist segment on Alice Walker and Womanism by Marco Visconti. The following segment that we have prepared for you is an interview with Trina Moyles, an Albertan author and journalist who recently wrote a new book entitled Woman Who Dig, Farming, Feminism, and the Fight to Feed the World. Trina's book is getting rave reviews from reviewers and food writers alike, including Raj Patel, author of Stuffed and Starved. In my interview with Trina, we discuss why more women are going into farming and the history of female farmers, or should I say farmerettes, in Canada. With more women than men currently enrolled in agriculture programs at Canadian post-secondary institutions and a growing number of female farming technicians across Canada, the question of how we can support gender parity and woman empowerment in the farming industry is more important than ever. Here's what Trina had to say about the topic. So in your Global Mail article, you wrote um, that 28% of farmers are female in Canada. Um, whereas in countries like Uganda, the numbers are 50%. Um, so numbers are on the rise in Atlantic Canada, and in BC, 38% of farmers are actually farmer operators. Sorry, I'm going to read that. <laughs> and in BC, 38% of farm operators are um, women. So why do you think women are becoming farmers in Canada, and why this trend? Why now? Why are more women than men studying agriculture and Canadian universities? I think that's a really interesting question and uh, a lot of people who are involved in um, the sustainable agricultural communities where women are the most predominant in terms of the, the number, like the uh, numbers of women under 35 years of age, that's the category or the demographic that's increasing the most in farming. So in my book, I, I tended to look at small-scale agriculture and sustainable agriculture and women's contributions. And a lot of people are asking that question. Why women? Why now? Um, uh, some of the women that I interviewed for my book uh, didn't come from farming uh, backgrounds or communities. And uh, they found inspiration, actually, some of them when they were in university studying global food politics, um, global hunger. Uh, international development. A lot of women have traveled to different countries where, like Uganda or India, where agriculture is really at the forefront still, and have become interested in the projects that they've uh, interacted with there. 
some women have um, done woofing, so uh, working on organic for- farms worldwide or volunteering in exchange for food and board. And so, yeah, a lot of women are entering the field in kind of an unconventional way through education and through uh, like travel and experience and volunteering. And I think a lot of women just love working outside. They love working with their hands or they're approaching it from sort of political and ethical um, backgrounds too, where they're trying to challenge the global food system by producing food more locally, reducing the greenhouse uh, 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 gas uh, impact (laughs) through conventional agriculture. And yeah, trying to change uh, the food system directly by growing food and making it more accessible to um, local communities. Do you think more efforts need to be done in order to get women into more large-scale agriculture? Or do you even think that's the future of the industry, large-scale monoculture, um, you know, farming? Um, what, what's your opinion on that? I definitely think that large-scale agriculture will play a role in the future of farming in Canada and worldwide. I think we need a mixed system where we have uh, different sizes of farms. Um, what is kind of frightening, though, is just that we're seeing uh, an increasing gap between farms getting bigger and bigger, and then the alternative and sustainable agriculture community This <laughs> people seem to be growing uh, less more food on less land, sorry. Um, but I, there are women certainly involved in large-scale agriculture as well, and there's excellent organizations in Canada, like the National Farmers Union is one, um, uh, the Young Agrarian Society as well, too, uh, where women are being like really nurtured into leadership roles on farms. Um, and yeah, and at post-secondary institutions across the country, the numbers of women studying agriculture at the university level is really high as well, too. So. Um, I think one of the greatest challenges to that, though, is just the rising cost of farmland. So farmland just over the last year in Canada increased on average across the provinces uh, by 10%, the value of farmland and the oil and um, and gas industry and commercial development that are driving up the cost of farmland. So it's really hard to get into um, large-scale agriculture if you haven't grown up with a family who's doing it or you haven't inherited land. So those are some of the challenges. But I met a farmer in northern Alberta, for example, who's working with these organizations. And they're trying to connect retiring farmers to young female farmers and young male farmers as well, too. So I definitely think uh, there's a future for women getting involved in in larger-scale agriculture as well. What do you think of the Trudeau government's new lending program through Farm Credit Canada to encourage women to go into farming? And what types of programs and support do you think would encourage more women to actually go into farming? Um, Actually, that's the first that I've heard of uh, the Farm Credit program specifically for women, but I'm not surprised to hear that. Um, There's just been an explosion, it seems like, in the last five years of uh, different funding opportunities and programs available to uh, women to get into agriculture. I think, uh, like I said before, because the cost of farmland is so high, I think financial support is really key uh, for women starting operations or for finding a way to provide mentorship um, uh, between like the uh, community of farmers that are older and retiring and young people looking to get into the field. So mentorship, finances. Um, and then also, I think uh, just when women recognize that there's more women in the field, they may feel like it's a safer environment or uh, just more encouraged uh, in general to, to get involved. One farmer I spoke to said she struggled at first, uh, and this was five years ago when she set out uh, in large-scale agriculture in a, in a small community because she felt like she couldn't access uh, the knowledge that she needed um, going to like community events. She always felt like she had to hang out with the women who were not necessarily farmers, whereas the men and sort of like the old boys club would be discussing 
you know, weather impact pests that were uh, prevalent that year. So I think the more women that are in the field, uh, there'll be more sort of pathways for younger females to get involved too, just to access information, feel safer, and feel like you can relate to other people in your field. So what kind of innovations do you think women are bringing to the industry? Um, so in your Global Mail article, you talk a lot. Of, you talked about one example where um, they had vertical farming, and like that increased like the amount of yield um, per um, square meter, I guess. So um, yeah, what kind of innovations do you think are unique to women coming into farming? What I looked at in my book was, again, mostly small-scale agriculture, so looking at sustainable agriculture. And women really seem to be leading the movement of trying to grow food organically um, and growing more food on less land. So growing vertically is certainly a part of that. I interviewed one farmer who uh, runs a small-scale operation just outside of Edmonton in uh, the community of Onaway, Alberta. And she's growing uh, microgreens, wheatgrass, um, so like radish, um, sunflower, kale, different um, uh, microgreens that are really high in nutrients. And she's growing them on trays under grow lights. And so she's able to grow in a small room, but she's stacked uh, the trays, of course, so they're vertically or vertical. Sorry. So um, she really can produce a lot in a small amount of space. Um, and another innovation <clears throat> I'm seeing, and this was outside of Canada, this was uh, actually in Nicaragua, <clears throat> excuse me, I saw women um, uh, who were living in a rainforest setting. So traditionally they would have pr- practiced um, slash and burn agriculture, which uh, is really hard on the soil. It really leads to soil erosion um, and runoff. And so women instead are planting uh, cocoa trees, um, which produce fruit after uh, three years and would produce for up to 20 years, meaning that women can grow trees, uh, uh, harvest the, um, the cocoa fruits, and then um, process them into chocolate, and they were selling them through a cooperative. So um, they're doing something called agroforestry, which is uh, interplanting trees with food crops. So that's something kind of innovative as well, too, that also has a positive impact on, on the environment. So you see lots of these um, examples where women are really trying to steward the soil, produce more food on less amount of land, and then to distribute locally. I think that's something important to recognize is that women's contributions often feed local populations. Um, as, a sp- as opposed to larger scale uh, agriculture, which is still dominated mostly by men and tends to be uh, shipped halfway around the world. So it's interesting that women are leading uh, like local food production and then also with an ethic for environmental stewardship. So you talk about the story of farmerettes in your book's introduction. Can you tell us a little bit about the term and where were you when you first heard the story about your great-grandmother? Oh, that's a good question. Um, my grandfather, John, was a real storyteller. Uh, he he grew up on the Canadian prairies, and they had a plot of land uh, just outside of Regina in a community called Wolseley, Saskatchewan. Um, and so he was a farm boy. He had so many wonderful memories of growing up on the farm. But I didn't actually really know much about my great-grandmother, Eleanor, who was a, a farm woman or a farmer, um, until I started the research for this book. So my interest <laughs> to write about um, women in agriculture made me reflect on my own history in Canada. And I'm three generations disconnected from the farm, like so many Canadians. Um, and uh, so I went back to my roots and... As I and I found my my great grandparents Dave and Eleanor Moyles, and um, as I learned about Eleanor, um, I realized that she was a part of this really interesting thing in World War II. Uh, well, of course, where 
um, a lot of men left the country to, you know, fight in the war, uh, and women too. Um, but uh, the Canadian officials were really worried about what was going to happen to um, Canada's uh, agricultural production and food system. And so just like women uh, went to the factories to work in the manu- manufacturing industry, they also went to work on the land, in on farms, um, to pick fruit and orchards and uh, take to the fields. And my great-grandmother was a part of that. So they called them, and this term was actually coined in World War One, where the same sort of uh, thing happened with needing w- needing women to step into the male-dominated um, trades, including farming. Uh, so they called them farmerettes, which I thought was kind of funny. Like, why why farmerettes? Why not just call them farmers? It, it seemed kind of contradictory, like trying to make it like, dainty and light and very feminine and (laughs) anyone who works in agriculture knows that it's you know you've got dirt under your nails and you're totally exhausted and you're sweating and you're like it's not attractive Um, but the Canadian government put out all of these propaganda posters of like really sexy beautiful looking women and like very you know coiffed hair and red lips and they were trying to make it very feminine and very sexy and attractive for the times in like the 1940s right and 50s and to encourage women into it um anyways uh obviously that was not the case for women who actually worked in agriculture that wasn't what they looked like um (laughs) you know the ads are made by men when they're trying to tell you that you'll look like that when you're you know like planting stuff and like (laughs) in farming like no woman would ever fall for that in my opinion um, yeah. No, exactly. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your involvement with grassroots in countries like Uganda, U.S., Cuba, and India like? And how do you think the issues there differ um, than, okay, how do you think the issues differ according to the country? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I tried to approach all of my research through um, grassroots development organizations because I wanted to find safe ways to meet with women and make sure my project was fully explained and um, and to identify groups that were um, really supporting women in agriculture. Um, so and so the issues I found that women were facing in places like Uganda, India, there were definitely similarities. I think one of the biggest ones is that it's just so economically hard to be a small-scale farmer. And and again, in uh, the global south and developing countries, women that are involved in the agricultural force and do own land tend to own really small um, plots of land, so like one or two acres. And actually, I should say that they, uh, many of them actually don't even own their own land. The land is owned by their husbands. But women play a really huge role in um, in. Uh, all of all, sorry, all processes of of agriculture and being on the land. So I did hear a lot of stories of how economically challenging it is, um, and of course that's due to larger political and economic forces uh, of the global food um, uh, trade. And uh, often in the cases, like in Guatemala, I found I met uh, maize farmers who were growing ancestral maize. The the seeds were passed down through their family. Those seeds must have been like hundreds of years old. <laughs> Um, but their local maize seed, and when they try and sell it in the local market, it just can't compete against um, the imported corn that's being grown in the U.S. and has been subsidized and is being, you know, flooded into the country. They just can't compete um, with that price, and so a lot of people are being kind of pushed off the land, economically speaking. Um, and ironically, often 
uh, selling their uh, farmland to larger operations and then working as farm workers, which gives them a wage, a uh, daily wage, but um, kind of takes away their greater security um, and increases their dependence on these, these companies or larger scale farms. So that was one of the big issues I found. The other was really sadly, um, and this was kind of a wake up call for me because I was working in international development, development at the time. And so much of the focus was on, you know, types of seeds and methods of farming and access to markets. But I began to realize, like, some of the biggest issues facing women were very social. They had nothing to do with the science of agriculture. So um, the issue of uh, domestic violence and violence against women was huge in so many of the places that I visited. Um, And often I wouldn't even be asking those kinds of questions in the interviews, yet it would come out in women's stories to me. So that was a big, well, not a surprise, but... It just wasn't something I went out looking for, and it, it became a very large theme of the book was looking at yeah de- um, violence against women and how it impacts on like the productivity of, of female farmers and their sense of security and well-being on the land and their ability to, to feed local communities. So I think communities everywhere have a huge amount of work to do to uh, find ways to eliminate violence against women, to address it, and um, increase justice for women. Certainly we won't have a food-secure society or societies until we address violence against women. Welcome back to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR. My name is Harmon Kang. You just finished listening to an interview with Trina Moyles, author of Women Who Dig, Farming, Feminism, and the Fight to Feed the World. If you would like to learn more about Trina, you can visit her website at trinamoyles.com. That's T-R-I-N-A-M-O-Y-L-E-S.com. And that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy your Easter long weekend. And to go with our horticultural theme, I will leave you with the song Wheatland by Oscar Peterson from his album, The Good Life. We produced this week's show at the CGSR studios in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on Treaty 6 territory. We are grateful to the diverse Indigenous people of this land, including the Cree, Blackfoot, Métis, Nakota Sioux, Iroquois, Dene, Ojibwe, Soto, Anishinaabe, Inuit, and many other whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence our vibrant community. Adam and Eve is a spoken word project of CJSRFM, and our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. For more information on our program and to send us any feedback, please check out our website, adamandteevecgsr.wordpress.com. We're always looking for more volunteers to help out, so if you're interested in learning any aspect of radio production, just get in touch.